Welcome. This is the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast with host Rob Giannino, where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing community. You see, the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. Check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts, and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Here's your host, Rob Giannino. Andy Mill has led an extraordinary life, and this is an extraordinary podcast. His time as an Olympic downhill skier, his marriage, an unfortunate divorce from tennis star Chris Everett Lloyd, and his dominance in the most revered tarpon tournaments is all here. It was a very easy conversation, and Andy's stories kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time. Being a past ski instructor, I was riveted by his journeys from the weekend NASCAR races to the Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria, and Lake Placid, New York. In addition to some of his successes, he does not hold back on sharing some of his personal heartbreaks and failures, as for him, it's all part of the journey to who he is today. As we move into the fishing and tarpon portions of the podcast, I was blown away and so thankful for the teaching and instruction Andy offers about becoming a better tarpon fisherman. When you think about the truest and most professional tarpon fly anglers in the world, you think about names like Stu App, Lefty Cray, and Andy Mill. His knowledge is the reference material for anyone who wants to improve their saltwater fly fishing skills. The conversation flowed easily and not surprisingly as Andy, along with his son Nikki, produce and conduct their own podcast, The Millhouse Podcast. Enjoy this conversation with Andy. As our brand states, fly fishing is a journey. We have been so glad to share this journey with you. Some of you have even decided to join us on this journey as part of our fly fishing travel program. Whether it's Iceland for monster browns and Atlantic salmon, Alaska for Pacific salmon, Patagonia, the jungle, and many places around the world, we are here to help you fulfill your dream fly fishing destination experience. As part of our curated travel program, we can assist you with all the details and logistics and offer advice to help you catch your bucket list fish. As part of a hosted group or traveling on your own, we are here to help. Check out the travel section at flyfishingjourneys.com. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast, and I'm so honored to have Andy Mill. Andy, thanks for being on our podcast. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. I, you know, we tried to do it last year, and we got all jammed up, and it was a busy day, and I had to catch a flight, so I'm, I'm very honored that you asked me to, you know, try this again. No, I'm super excited. I have to admit, tarpon fishing isn't one of them. I'm a truer trout fisherman back in the day. I'm hunting for my first uh, tarpon. I did hook up one. I jumped one in, in Belize last year, and... Uh, he spit me off, so I'm actually hoping you can give me some incredible tips on how I might be able to catch my first tarpon. But before we get into all that fun stuff, we want to talk a little bit about your background. I know you've done the, the tournament fishing on the tarpon trail. You've fished with presidents. So why don't we start with where you're living now? Tell me about where you're living now, Andy. I was very fortunate to be honored into the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust Hall of Fame in New York last year. Congratulations. Yeah, I saw I that. That was and, awesome. And Huey Lewis inducted me and... You know, we were in an Uber uh, driving across town in New York going to dinner, and this Uber driver asked me, what do you do? And the only thing, I, how I could answer was, you know, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Not what you, know, you think. Well, because I've, I've had this huge transition in my life where initially, and a few people know that I used to be an Olympic skier. I skied at two Olympics, four world championships. And then after my ski career, I got into broadcasting. But I hated broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I was talking about something I wanted to be doing, mm. and I got very fortunate because I did a couple specials for the, uh, the Outdoor Life Network, and then they wanted me, they knew I was a fisherman, they wanted me to host a fishing show, and I told them, I said, if you match all the money I make from my contracts as a skier, and you give me a four-year contract, I'll change careers. Mm. So almost 40 years ago, I went from being an Olympian, you know, broadcaster, to a fishing television host. Mm. And I made this, this lateral shift that was so wonderful in the fact that, you know, in a lifetime when you have a career or an athlete chasing their dreams, you get to the top of the mountain and then you slide from that point for the rest of your life. It's hard to stay equal to the greatest moment of your athletic career. You always can't, now you're, you're doing VIP stuff you're traveling around for sponsors. Mm-hmm. You're not in the game. Right. 
When I had that career change with the Outdoor Life Network to become a fishing host and a producer of fishing shows, my life took off again. Yeah. So now for the last 35 years, summarizing that, I have dedicated my life to, to winning the most tarpon tournaments in the world. Mm -hmm. And the big ones, like the Gold Cup. I never won an Olympic medal. I came close. I got sixth in the 76 downhill in Innsbruck. But as a fisherman, as a tarpon fisherman, the biggest tournament in the world is the Gold Cup. That's the Super Bowl of fly fishing for tarpon, and I ended up winning that five times. So I had a second chance. Yeah. So where I live now is, I'm going to jump back to your, you know, I got a little sidetracked. I, I love just, it. I just kind of wanted to build, right. you know, who I am and where I am today here in New Jersey. Yeah. So for the last 35 years, I was a tarpon fisherman, chased all the tournaments, wrote a book. But I have two homes. I have a home in Aspen. Yeah. And I have a home in Florida. I no longer ski that much. You know, I've had 23 operations. My yeah. body hurts. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm a big elk hunter. So what I do is in the winter, I come to Florida, spend my winters in Florida. In the summer, I go to Aspen. And in the fall, we're in the high country chasing elk. Yeah. So I don't want to give away the last chapter here before we set the scene, but I, yeah. I think I'm going to anyway, because, you know, when we had talked and you were so gracious to uh, say you'd be on my podcast last year, it didn't work out, but here you are. I started doing some preparing because I wanted to listen to your podcast. You have your own podcast called the Millhouse Podcast, and we'll talk a bit about that. Listening to some of your episodes, climbing that mountain literally for skiing, right. transitioning, climbing the mountain in elk hunting, not so much transitioning, but then climbing the mountain again in tarpon fishing. You have this, I don't know if it's just this athletic you know, nature to try to be the best you can be at anything. And it seems like there's a drive there for you that you need to get to the top of whatever you're going to do. Well, I asked uh, Tom McGuane that in our uh, podcast recently up in Montana. And Tom McGuane, many people will remember, is an unbelievable author. Yeah. He's in three Hall of Fames. He's in the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's in the Cutting Horse Hall of Fame. And he's in the Fishing Hall of Fame. He's written... The Longest Silence, 92 in the Shade. And I asked him, too, tell me about all these great things that you have done. And you're in the Hall of Fame in three different sports. He said, you know, I like you, Andy. I think we like to learn. We're interested in doing other things than being one-dimensional. But if you're passionate and if you like something, why not try to be the best that you can be at it? So that's what's always driven me, is that if I like something... I'm diving head first. Going all in. Yes. It's like a love affair. It's like a, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, but you don't know. You dive all in. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same with a sport. That's the same with a hobby. And I don't care what you do. It's very important to find something that you love. And if you hate what you're doing, do the best that you can to just, like, cut it. Yeah. And go chase your dreams. Change gears. Yeah. What would you say is your home waters for chasing tarpon right now? I always love the Lower Keys. You know, the Lower Keys is an area where I cut my teeth with Harry Spear. He was my mentor for seven years. We fished 60 days a year okay. for seven years. And I think he groomed me to be a tarpon fisherman. So the Lower Keys around Sugarloaf, mile marker 17, you have that whole uh, Sugarloaf shoreline. You have the basins of loggerhead and coupon bite. Yep. I know those fish. I learn how to really understand exactly what I'm seeing. Because to be a great fisherman, look, good fishermen can catch big fish and a lot of fish. A great fisherman can catch the fish that doesn't want to be caught. Unbelievable. And a good guide can find fish, but a great guide can find the fish that doesn't want to be found. Wow. So in a tournament scenario, if you have that upper echelon angler and guide those guys are going to win not only once, but over a long period of time. They're going to dominate tournaments. And that's what I was really driven to become, is understanding my world, that fishery, and know how when the fish blinks its eye, I know what that means. Now, that's a little outrageous yeah. to think that. But when I was really at my best, I felt like every fish I saw I could catch. So that's my favorite water in the whole world. I've fished keys. around the world, everywhere. But that water in the lower keys, I know exactly where they swim. So my son and I, we fish seven weeks a year, every day for seven weeks. And now he knows all this. And it's such a pleasure. Are there uh, the same seven weeks every year? Yep. I go down April 23rd 
and we finish fishing like uh, June 10th. Okay, and that's a heart of the Lower Keys. That's the time of year you want to be down there. Yeah. But look, when you have a cold winter, you know, a lot of times those fish get pushed south uh, with that cold water. So now there's a lot of fish in the Lower Keys, but when it gets warm, all those fish come in out of the Gulf and they get pushed up into the shallow water. So you can find them, you know, in January and February and March. Yeah. But the real migration is that, that area between like April, May, June, and July. So you're hunting the migrating fish more like any of the resident tarpon? You'll find both. I mean, I was fishing this Monday down in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was surrounded by hundreds of tarpon. They just wouldn't bite because the water was a little bit too cold yet. Yep. But traditionally, you target these fish in May. Okay. We're going to circle back around to the tarpon stuff and some of the tournament stuff, but I want to go back to where you grew up. Where were you born, Andy? I was born in Laramie, Wyoming. And when I was, my dad was in the lumber business. And when I was seven, we moved to Aspen, Colorado, where he got a job at the local lumber business. And that's where we learned how to ski the year before we moved to Aspen. So I'd already had this taste of the excitement of sliding on skis. So when I got to Aspen the following year, it was like game on. Yeah, yeah. So at that time, was Aspen more of a kind of lumber area? Was it known to be like a destination for like high-end skiing then or was it more just look uh, Aspen hosted the 1950 world championship so skiing was on the map for Aspen but it was basically a a mining town okay in the 1800s 50,000 people lived in Aspen but when we moved there in 1960 there were 1,200 people that were residents Okay. It was a little ski town, but the only paved street was Main Street. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. I graduated with 32 kids in my class. <laughs> I'll always have a home there. I've, I've got a really nice home on the top of a mountain. So I'm, I'm out of town, thank God, because as we all know, COVID really brought a lot of people to the West. They're working from home, from afar. Yeah. And now we're seeing an environment that no one's... Uh, it's a new world order. It's yeah. a new, new. Mm-hmm. And we have to gravitate to that and, yeah. and embrace it. Because otherwise, you're going to hate every day you, you go into town. Like, I know. I didn't go to Aspen into town last year more than five times in five months. I know. But, you know, here's an interesting thing. You know, we're talking about how the West is being inundated with people like the rest of the world. Speaking to Rick Ruoff recently in one of our podcasts, and he, too, he was the 19th guide in the Keys. Okay. All of a sudden, there were more and more people, and all of a sudden, it got really crowded, and he was thinking that this is going to be my last year. Yeah. But he was going to be obligated to his clients to fish, you know, those days of that year, finish out the year. Yeah. Or actually, I'd say the next year, because he already booked the next year. He got back to Island Marotta, and he said, everybody was saying, hey, Rick, how are you, man? I love you. I miss you. And he realized it was a me problem. It was a perspective thing. And he just changed his outlook like, you know... I'll still go find my little corners and niches to right. fish, right? but I'm not going to let it drive me crazy. So back in the 1960s, you're in Aspen, and your dad's a logger, and then how did you get involved in skiing? I mean, it was obviously skiing first, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, we were skiing on the weekends, and then I slowly got involved with skiing around slalom poles. And I thought, wow, this is kind of cool, yep. because now uh, there's a time, and I can assess how well I skied because there's a time involved. And then you'd run down the track again, you know, like a NASTAR track. Anybody can go down through this race course and, and see their time and compete against each other. Yep. I was addicted to that. And then the following year, right away, I got involved with the Aspen Ski Club. And there were only like 10 kids, yeah. you know, that were in the club. And then we would start skiing against Vail and Steamboat, the local, you know, ski areas around Colorado. And then we, I got to the point where I was skiing in the western states and when I was 12 I was the best skier in the country for my age wow I won a, an event in Duluth Minnesota so right away I saw some some success yeah and I just chased it down you loved that you were winning and you had some a personal pride in that yes it kind of becomes part of your who you are look if it feels good we're going to do it again yeah you're going to get recognized for it you're going to drive for and it and you have more success, you're going to do it again, but that much harder because now the competition gets better. So now you start climbing that ladder. So now all of a sudden I'm skiing against everybody in the United States and you get good enough and you start becoming one of the better skiers in the country. Now you're racing in Europe and racing against the international athletes. Yeah. 
in the Olympics. What's that connecting point from just going from like qualifying in the U.S. and, and moving up the ladders in the U.S. and then going to Europe? And then what's that connecting point to the Olympics? So what it is is like you have international ranking. So uh, you're ranked in the United States, yep. and then you're also ranked internationally. But to get into the Olympics, like the downhill, only four Americans race in that event. Okay. So you've got to be one of the best four Americans in the country to be able to race in the world championships or the Olympics. So once you start winning and, and getting international points, you can see the pecking order. Mm -hmm. It's obvious who's ranked one through ten or whatever. Then now you all of a sudden you're in the Olympics and the world championships. It's like qualifying, right? You get into exactly the qualifying. Right. Yeah. Then you have to do well in qualifying <clears throat> and then... Just like any other sport, you know, yeah. golf, you got to qualify for the weekend round and you got to be in the top so many in the world, the top 125 to have a PGA Tour card. What were your main events in the Olympics? I was a downhiller. Always downhill? No, actually I was, uh, it's only skied downhill in the Olympics, but before the Olympics I skied slalom, giant slalom and downhill, all three events. Okay, so when you were kind of U.S. <clears throat> and Europe and gaining your international status, you were doing all the events. You're right. But you were the best, your best event, which is why you got qualified to the Olympics, was the downhill. Well, what happened was I was a pretty good slalom and giant slalom skier, but the year before the Olympics I had two knee operations oh, that wow. summer. And I can't help training. Yeah, well, what happens is on solid ice, when that ski goes around and maybe it, it chatters a little bit. Yeah. When you've got a sensitive knee, you don't want to make 70 turns. You want to make five. Right. So downhill, you only have, you know, you're going to 80 <laughs> miles an hour. And you might make eight turns yeah. from the top of the mountain to the bottom. And Just only, keep them pointing downhill, huh? It only takes a minute and 50 seconds. Yeah. You know, so I gravitated to the downhill because it was easier on, on my knees. Did you love it? Oh, are you kidding? It's exploding, huh? I think fish likes water. <laughs> Before we jump back into the podcast, here's a short word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Are you a guide, a lodge, or a product manufacturer in the fly fishing or outdoor industry? I want to introduce you to and highlight Cross Current Insurance. Their entire team are great people and experts in their field. They have a guide insurance program that is amazing and very affordable. If you are a lodge or retailer, they also have programs tailored to your needs. These guys fish and are in the outdoors, so they know the industry and the landscape. To get more information on a program that's perfect for you, find them at CrossCurrentInsurance.com. What did you ski on? What were your skis? I skied on Rosinals. But I skied on a number of companies, and you know, as, a, as an athlete, that's one of the mistakes I made. I skied on some, on some subpar products for a little bit, and that really hurt me. I loved K2s. I was a ski instructor at Stowe, Mount Snow, through college. It's one of my little side things I did in college to have some fun and meet some friends. And, and uh, I was a ski instructor at Stowe. I went to school in northern Vermont for two years, and then when I moved to UMass out west in Massachusetts, I worked in Mount Snow. So I, I love skiing. My dad had me on my skis when I was really young. It's fun. It's, it's a... What's really great about skiing is that, is that it's a sense of freedom. Nobody tells you how many, how to turn left, how to turn right, how fast or slow you have to go. Yeah. You can be your own bird, and that's what I dug about it. Yeah. I like that. Going fast. Going fast. I used to love going fast. Be your own bird, man. You had some good falls, some good wrecks? Oh, well, I've had 23 operations, and that does not count broken legs and arms. Oh, boy. In 1981... It was interesting. My transition as a skier, I was okay until my last year. So I'd spent my whole career struggling, trying to figure out how to put the magic wand to the snow. And after the Olympics, Billy Merle said, if I don't come back from the last few races, top 10 in the world, he's going to make room for some younger skiers. Yeah. Because I'd been on the team, I was, I think, 27 in Canada, the last World Cup, I missed the gate. I was disqualified. I went over to Heavenly to see the pro circuit, and I realized that was kind of a rinky-dink circuit at the time. I didn't want to be involved with that. But the last event was the national championships downhill and a Noram North American event the following day. And I thought, well, it's over. I just want to try to re retire as the national champion. And I had won the national championships in 1976 after the Olympics. No, when, when did I win? 75. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I already had won the event, but this I wanted to retire as champion. But I got second in that, that national championships, mm. and I was just so upset. But there was one more race the next day, 
it turned out I won that next race the next day by over three seconds, and the point spread put me back in the top ten in the world. Wow. So I knew I had one last chance. So that summer, I trained really, really hard. I went back to Rosno skis and Lang boots, my old equipment. We had a new coach, an Austrian coach. So he taught me how to put the ski on edge, not with a knee inclination, but with a hip move. Wow. So if you take a look, in a high-speed, say, 70-mile-an-hour turn, if you put the ski on edge with your knee, moving your knee to the inside, that means that your ankle, your knee, and your hip are not in the same plane. I see what you're saying, yeah. So you're not as strong. So that ski will wobble. And every time it wobbles at a chatter mark, you're you're scrubbing speed. You're you're losing time. So he taught me how to move the ski to the inside by just moving my hip. And keeping the ankle, the knee, and the hip in the same plane. That way I've got a stronger platform in that high-speed turn. And I trained with the Austrians with our new coach. I went over early before the team came over. And I started winning all the time trials against the Austrians. And I'm, you're talking Franz Klammer, yeah. uh, Wiernsberger, Leonard Stock, all those guys. So I knew that I had finally figured this whole thing out after all these years. Got some information. And I was so excited because I'd always wanted to win a World Cup event. And so that going into that next year, I got ninth in the first race. And then in um, Val Gardena, Italy, I got fourth. Yep. Only like a couple of tenths out of first. So I knew I was not going to I was going to win any day. The next event, I won all the training runs in St. Moritz, but my ski fell off in the race, and I tore a ligament in my knee. So I came back for Christmas. Dr. Stedman cleaned it up, and I went back. I skipped Kitzbühel and Garmisch because it was so icy. And I got to the Lobberhorn. It was high elevation, softer snow. And I told the coaches, I'm going to go into that first right-hand corner as fast as I can. It was about a 70-mile-an-hour corner. I went into that corner, and my knee was fine. And I was so excited, I started ripping down that course. And I had forgotten in the inspection that last jump into the finish was extra big that year. And I got distracted because my leg felt so good, and I knew I was back in the game, that I came into that last corner too tight, and I got launched 200 feet through the air, landed on the flat. I caught an edge. And it pulled me into this fencing head first, and I broke my neck, my back, my leg, and all the ligaments in my right knee. Wow. And it was over. That was your last run? It was, it was over. Because I'd already, at that time, I'd already had, like, I don't know, 10 knee operations or whatever. That was your last run ever? Ever. In, in competitive. competition. Yeah. Wow. What, that was in, what, 1981? That was 1981, yep. And so at that point, it's like, what do I do now for the rest of my life? I knew I couldn't work for anybody. But I didn't have an education other than a high school. So I thought, you know, if I create some sort of a television show and, and syndicate it to all the ski areas around the country that had these small TV stations coming out, getting started, there were like 85, you know, small TV stations. I said to my mind, I'm going to produce it like a ski tip, ski with Andy Mill. I'll teach people how to ski on this tip, how to walk in ski boots, how to walk up and down stairs how to snowplow, how to stem Christie, how to ski the moguls, how to ski the powder, how to ski trees, yeah. and how to jump and cover the gambit of skiing. I will give this ski tip to the TV stations free of charge. So now they have content, and I also gave them a 30-second commercial inside that five-minute show. So they had content and a commercial space. But I own, I, own, I think, three 30-second uh, spots in the opening and closing billboard. Okay. So now I'm retired. I don't have much money. But now in this little ski tip. How old were you at the time? 28. Okay. So now, since the audience is so vibrant, the audience was so ski specific that now my, my sponsors were given the TV, me, because I had the show, each 30 is worth 60000 Yeah. Now it's getting paid 30000 for, you know, wearing Ray-Ban sunglasses. Yeah. I was getting $80,000 for wearing Fila ski clothes. 30000 for bindings, 30000 I was making 400000 a year. That took me two weeks, a week to film, a week to edit, and that was it. Yeah. It was a cash cow. You were branding. You're branding. You had your brand name. It's your own brand. Well, the branding came a little bit later, but it started with the TV show that had real substance that I could sell. Yeah. So I got, look, I got lucky. Yeah. And then I started working all the TV stuff for the networks. I was covering the Olympics. Albertville, Lillehammer, all the World Cup skiing. So my name was still out there, and I was doing a lot of VIP outings. So that was just a snowball for the next 20 years. And I I didn't have any money. I didn't have a household name, but I was hungry. 
I was hungry to make a living and be sustainable. And then you had mentioned that it just wasn't filling that bucket for you, that I passion. Hate, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it because when I was doing TV coverage, I was talking about something I wanted to be doing. Right. When I was doing the TV show, it was boring. But it was sustainable. I made a lot of money doing it, so I had to do it. I, was, I, I got so, so lucky because then 20 years after my retirement, being in the broadcast business, and I got a call from the Versus TV network asking me if I would host a couple specials for them. And I did, and they loved it. And they knew I liked to fish. And they said, we need a fishing show because it was a new network, and they wanted to put a lot of money into a highly professional polished TV show. And that would give them product to show all their advertisers that this network is for real. How much fishing experience did you have at the time? I was a trout fisherman. I grew up trout fishing. I tied trout flies for my allowance when I was 12 years old. I loved it. You grew up trout fishing in Aspen? In Aspen. And I traveled the world in the fall when I was training on the glaciers in Europe with a fly rod. So So like the the frying pan? All that. Basalt area? Ernie Schwieber taught me how to fly cast when... I was playing baseball, riding my bike to baseball practice. I saw this fly line horizontally going back and forth across space. I thought, wow, that is really cool. And I rode my bike over there. Where was he at the time? In Aspen? He was in Aspen. He, he had come in to do this fly casting presentation yep. for the country store. Okay. And I went over and hooked up with him. And at eight years of, moved into Aspen, seven, so I was eight years old. He taught me how to fly cast a little bit. Wow. And then uh, Chuck Fothergill, another really famous name in the fly fishing world, uh, he taught me how to tie flies. So now I was tying flies for the local stores and fishing every day, going to baseball practice in the middle of the day. So I had a fishing background. So after 20 years of my broadcasting career, Versus asked me after doing these specials to do a fishing show. And I said, I tell you what, you match all the money I make as a skier with all my contracts because I can't do this I can't stop all that ski stuff yeah. for one year and then go back to the ski right. if I do this my ski career is toast wow I said you match all my contracts and you give me a four year contract I'll do it so now I had a career change I went and produced fishing shows for four years from around the world we were in uh, the Seychelles we were, I did a TV show in the Arctic Circle with former President Bush 41 Costa Rica Guatemala St. Thomas so it was fresh and salt or mostly salt. It was both. And then I told the network, you match what I make as a skier, and whatever money I save off the uh, production budget, I get to keep as my bonus. I was making like eight, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year fishing. Yeah. I was just so... It's the dream. So lucky. But I don't know how I've done it, but I've always figured out how to get paid for doing things I love. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had a passion for your skiing, and then you went from one step to the next, and you kept driving and driving and driving and you have that drive I do. there's an inner drive yeah. that i think goes in everything you do you, you know you go for what you want for sure i don't like to lose <laughs> I, I what did they say I don't Was like that the lose. race car driver second place is first loser <laughs> no doubt i tell you what in the tarpon terms if i lost i would be so mad if i got second i would be in furious because it would take me a whole year for right. that tournament to come back. Well, we're going to touch on the tournaments, and I want to get to, like, the heart of, like, tarpon. Because most guys around yeah, here sure. are just going to go tarpon fish and try to catch a tarpon and have, have some fun. They're not going to enter tournaments. So we don't have to spend a ton of time on tournaments. But I did listen to some of your podcasts, and you had mentioned why you kind of got out of. Let, let's kind of go to the end. Why did you get out of tournament fishing for well, tarpon because I, I know the answer but i want our listeners was, to know the answer it was really abrupt and, and it was really it was really really difficult and it rocked my life for quite a while and the fact that you know after we won we won five gold cups out of six years five out of six and then my guide quit timmy hoover he wanted to move on and stop guiding he wanted to get out of the business and then right then you know out of nowhere you know my wife chris Everett decided to you know she wanted a divorce how many years were you guys married 21 with three kids mm. we were married 18 but we were together for 21 with three kids so my life crashed i fucking excuse the word but i lost my life yeah my family has always been the most important thing and being married to chrissy was was just such a an unbelievable gift yeah here she was, you know, America's sweetheart, yeah. tennis player, this big champion. Everybody loves Chrissy. You know, and how we ended up together, it was really kind of an interesting thing. But 
we never had an issue and all of a sudden she wanted out and she ended up you know hanging out with my one of my best friends at the time greg norman so how i got a fishing was just almost, it was almost like that glass ceiling crashed on top of my head yeah we figure what hurts worse right there's two parts of that story that hurt yeah well it's just like getting hurt in, in the ski world you know i lost my career from an injury in the fishing career i basically lost that because all of a sudden i didn't care i'd lost my family yeah that losing my family was like breaking my neck and back as a skier and i was when you talk about being lost i was lost i was at the bottom of the hole because a lot of times people get divorced or separate because they grow apart i never felt that and chrissy you know all these years later talks about you know it's because she was going through menopause and all that but we're still best friends you know she had cancer this last year and i was with her for every uh chemo infusion i talked to her every day take a look at this greg norman leaves his family he breaks up my family spends a million dollars on a wedding and then divorces chrissy 13 months after being married unbelievable i mean really well i mean how do people yeah. think how do people even grasp that i mean there's two three things breaks up his family breaks up my family you know gets married and then breaks his marriage up all in like a year and a half or so. Well, I don't know this to be true, but you know, we tried to have the podcast last year, and you, you kind of got jammed up with your time here because you're so you know people want you at the Hardy booth, and then you had mentioned you had to catch a flight, and you had you were gone, and I saw the next day that you happened to be with Chrissy at a cancer treatment, so I had a feeling. I said, you know what? I bet you he had to catch a flight to go home to take Chrissy to, to cancer treatment. Is that, well, is that somewhat true? Well, my flight was already scheduled, but yeah. You know, and, I said, and what, so, a, what an amazing So after story. they got a divorce, Chrissy's been, you know, look, I'm not going to make her look bad, but, you know, she too is part of that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. she could have said, no, you know, I've got a great family. Yeah. You know, well, leave, leave life happens and but it sucks. Shit happens, but you know what? When you take a look at the whole picture... I would never have ever changed anything in my life yeah. than what I've experienced because I'm the man I am today because of all these things that have happened to me and right. all these great things that have happened to me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. We are who we are. There's no escape from pain. Life is life. Yeah. And excuses are nothing more than excuses to place blame and become a victim. And so... It is what it is. Yeah. And well, it's I, amazing that you guys can circle back around and, and find a bond and find a, a healing there and then still be friends. Right. Well, you know, let's not forget that we really loved each other. We still do. Yeah. It just it was a period of time where her head got a little bit messed up. And uh, ever since Greg left her, she's been begging to get me back. <laughs> I say, you're lucky I'm even talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to make sure we send a copy of this to Chris, Chrissy Everett so she can weigh in on the rest of the side oh, of the story. Look, she's heard it. I'll tell you really two funny stories that I think you'll love. Chrissy came into Aspen after she was separated from John Lloyd. They were filed, they had filed for a divorce, and so she was in a separated place, as was I. My first wife, we were married for eight years, and she became a cocaine addict. Oh, boy. Unfortunately. And after five years, I wanted out. Yeah. And so she comes into Aspen after the Christmas break to hang out with Martina. And, and she, Martina never told over wanted to teach Chrissy how to ski. Well, we're hanging out every day. I meet her at, at the New Year's Eve party. And now here, she and I, two athletes going through divorces, have a lot in common. So we're hanging out every day for like 10 days. And now all of a sudden, Martina is going to jump on a plane to go play the Australian Open. And Chrissy said, no, I'm going to stay here with Andy. So she skipped the Australian Open to hang with me. Well, we hadn't slept together yet. So when Martina leaves and Chrissy's staying in Martina's house, all of a sudden I'm staying, I'm the, after dinner one night we're over there, and you know how things work out. All of a sudden, you know, she's got the big bed. So we go to Martina's bed and spend the night together. I wake up in the morning. I've got Chrissy, you know, on my arm. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I just slept with Chris Everett and Martina never told his bed. <laughs> <laughs> I got to call somebody. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Somebody did, yeah. Well, you would FaceTime somebody. Today, you'd just FaceTime, right? I got to call. So I called everybody. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But we were together, you know, after that for the next, I don't know, 21 years. How's she doing? She's great. Yeah, she's great. She's so lucky, you know. And 
I would get into the BRCA gene, but I won't because that's too long of a story. But anyway, she had ovarian cancer. She, it was undetected. And she had a mutated BRCA gene. They said, you need to get a hysterectomy right now. They tested the tissue, and she already had cancer. Wow. Four months later, she would have been stage four. Wow. And she just got a double mastectomy. So she's healthy, and she's, she's fine. Doing she's good. got a great chance that cancer will never come back. Good, good. And But that was like quite a ride. You're moving around with her, you're skiing, she's playing tennis. That must uh, have been like a whirlwind. Yeah, because at the time, yeah, she was still active as an athlete playing, playing big events. So I would be on the road doing my thing, you know, some doing some TV broadcast somewhere, yeah. and then soon it would be over. I'd fly to wherever she was. Oh, okay. I remember I went uh, tarpon fishing right after I met her in Venezuela. And the tarpon fishing sucked. I missed her so much. I just fished one day and flew to Houston. I'm gone. I'm gone. <laughs> I'm out. What Olympics were you in? I was in the 76 uh, Olympics in okay. Innsbruck, Austria, and, and uh, Lake Placid in New York. In 80. Yeah, My dad went to that. I actually have a badge and a plaque. and He, a probably, he probably has a picture of me skiing. Yeah, down the I think that was probably one of the things he wanted to see was like those down. skiing downhills. He probably saw you. But I remember I was 10 years old at the time, and my dad went to the Olympics in Lake Placid because uh, we're from Massachusetts, so it was only a short ride to the Adirondack. Well, that's wild. So you were doing the TV show, and how did, like, the tarpon, like, when did you kind of... Oh, you know what? Uh, th- you know, this is really fascinating, and the fact that, you know, so many TV shows are so bad yep. on fishing, but Flip Pallet and Walker's K Chronicles... I'm brought sitting, me to the game. I'm sitting here because of those that, that show and then Jose Wahebe, yeah, the Spanish Fly. Those I two want, shows. I wanted to be on Flip's boat. I was a skier. I'd get up early on a Sunday morning to watch Flip. Yeah, and I was invited to fish on the show Fly Fishing the World with John Barrett. I remember it. And I went uh, to Belize and I hooked a tarpon. When I saw the tarpon open his mouth and bite my bug, I was like, "Holy shit, man! This that is was really your first good. tarpon." Yeah, I didn't catch it, but I saw it, and I went, and I thought, when I get back to Florida, I'm going to chase this thing down. So uh, I fished with Bob Branham a little bit, and then I got with Harry Spear, and he was my mentor for the next seven years, 60 days a year. I fished with him for tarpon, and he groomed me to be a tournament fisherman. But it was like dope. It was like sticking the needle in my arm when I saw that tarpon bite my fly. I was toast. You loved it. changed my life. I knew at that moment I had to be involved. And then years later, it's interesting because when I was going through my divorce a few years after that, I cried for the next three years after Chrissy left. I was toast. Tom Perro from Wild River Press kept begging me to write a tarpon book because by then I was already starting to win tournaments and win a lot of them. So I ended up writing my book, A Passion for Tarpon. I thought, I got to get out of this hole. I got to change my mindset. The tournaments were over. I stopped fishing tournaments. My wife left me. So that's when I wrote the book. What year was that book come out? It's like a coffee table. Yeah, it's like a 500-page book. It's like a Bible of tarpon fishing. Yeah. What it is, is it's uh, from Wild River Press. They they still have copies, but we've sold, I think, 8,000 copies. And that's a lot of books for a book that sells for $100. I saw like 125 and you can get like a collector's edition signed numbered for like 500. Yeah. But anyway. What year was that? I have no. It's got to be 16 years ago or so, whatever. But look. That's what basically helped me get out of that hole. And then after that... Writing the book. Writing the book got me out of, out of the hole. No kidding. Yeah, because my divorce was right here in front of my face, 24-7. I couldn't get out of bed. I was in a ball crying for hours on end. I was paralyzed. So now, all of a sudden, I told Tom, he kept begging for like a couple of years. I said, fine, let's do this. I said, but let me tell you something. It's going to be on my time. If you want this out in six months or a year... It's not happening. Yeah. He said, okay, I trust you. And I wrote this book, one word at a time, with a pen and a yellow legal pad. No kidding. You and Chuck Farimsky. 500 and some pages. You wrote it by hand. You didn't type that. No. Oh, my. I didn't have a computer. Wow. And then I got a computer, and I started handpicking two fingers. Five years later, it got done. Well, it was obviously cathartic for you. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. It was for sure. So, and you still think it's today it's a, a relevant book for tarpon yeah, fishing? Yeah, the, the only thing is that now a lot of the fishing in the Keys is based on fishing the worm fly, the palola worm. And that is a very specialized technique in its own, its own right. It's very technical. You're using a very small little, little worm fly. Yeah. And the cast has got to be very precise. And when it lands, the fly's got to be moving. 
and it's got to slide right by the tarpon's face right here. It's just almost like a reactionary bite. You can feed a tarpon with a worm fly, but the best and easiest way, most successful way, is to get the reaction bite. When you get it, you cast just past the fish and maybe out front just a little bit. So when the, when the fish closes the gap to the fly, you accelerate it and get that reactionary bite. The Fly Fishing Show Tour travels the country every winter. From January until March, the largest consumer fly fishing shows in the world will be in seven locations. The stops are Marlboro, Massachusetts, which covers the New England area, Denver, Colorado, Edison, New Jersey, which is the New York, New Jersey and Mid-Atlantic State show, Atlanta, Georgia, Bellevue, Washington, Pleasanton, California, the Bay Area show, and finally back to where it all started in Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Show. These are super fun events that are packed with teaching, presentations, and everything you would ever want to know or see in fly fishing. Find all the details at flyfishingshow.com. So listening to some of the podcasts, you talk about feeding the fish, like you just mentioned, but also talking to the fish. You communicate to the fish, to the tarpon, with your fly. Exactly right. Can you explain that concept? Because I've used that concept in other forms of fishing now that I've heard you say it. Yeah. Look, most people that fly fish in the salt strip too fast. Unbelievable. It's, tip right aut- there. it's just automatic. They, they land the fly and they start stripping. To feed a fish, you have to dance with the fish. You put the fly in a position so this fish can see it. Once he sees the fly, that will dictate what you do next. So you see, all of a sudden you see the fish sees your fly. You might bump it. He either starts closing in a little bit closer, or he turns his head and, and pukes on it. Oh, he's starting to come closer. Okay. Well, you bump, bump, come closer. If it's a bonefish, he might stand on his head and pin it. And it's interesting, a lot of people set a hook too soon with, with permit and tarpon. When they tail up on your fly, they haven't pinned it yet. They haven't eaten it yet. What they, these fish will do, they'll stick it into the sand. And when they stick it in the sand... They wiggle their, their tail to get the momentum to really get it. You don't strip strike until you see that tail move. Because a lot of times they'll get tailed up, but if the tail's not shaking or moving, they're just looking at it. So if they're not doing anything, I'll maybe just slide it. And then they chase it down. Bump, bump. They pin it. Then you strip strike and get them. So it's all about a dance. Humbly. You talk about feeding a fish. Yeah. Like with tarpon, sometimes... I'll feed a tarpon. I've, I've fed a tarpon for 30 feet before before he finally bit it. Just dancing with him. Strip in, so, slow, so, stop. Sometimes if you, I've had my fly on the lip of their face, on the top of their nose, and you're bumping it off, and they come like this, and they won't grab it. And when they don't grab it, all of a sudden you, you slide it, or you move your rod tip, yep. you slide it fast, like for six inches, like it's trying to get away. And then they just race it down and grab it. So when you feed fish... You have to look at your, you know, the animal and dance with it. You do, you, oh, you like this? How about yeah. this? He does that? You try this. You're stepping, you're moving, you're dancing. Is there a Paloma fly that you use, or, or what do you use to imitate uh, that hatch or match you that? Know, you know what? That what worm. really works well for me is just get a piece of suede, like, like a shoelace suede. Yeah. In like a really pale pink, red. You know, a lot of different flies are made. Simplicity is, you know, I've always found to be better. Yep. But some of the flies are so good now, they look just like a worm. You know, initially they were a little bit complicated, like Stu Aptos time flies. They would have, you know, like a red red feather and like a green palmered head. Yep. But now they're really exacting looking to the worms. The biggest mistake I would say that people make in tarpon fishing is that you were talking about you have that fish jump off. With big fish, it's a little bit easier to hook them because when you go to set the hook, they have a 40-pound head. So when you strike that fish and when you set that hook, that head doesn't move. So the, the hook has a chance to penetrate. Baby tarpon, the head is so light that when you set the hook, that head you pull that head. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get the hook on them. And most people probably use too big of a hook. You want to use a really small little mosquito hook or a 1-0, file the barb down. So it's a hypothermic needle. So when you go to set the hook, it's going to penetrate much easier. Because if you have a wire-gauged hook, it's not, going to, it's not going to work very well. And you're better off without the barb. The new hooks are so great. Like the Gamagatsu SL12s, they're just a fiber of a, of a barb. Yep. And, and they work really great. Just enough to try the to keep it. In the old days, we were using 3407SS Mustads. 
mm-hmm. and that was like a heavy gauged wire with a big old barb and you couldn't get the hook in them so we just pinched that barb down are there like some go-to patterns that besides the paloma fly but if you want to have like a, a tarpon toad or i mean do you subscribe there, there, to any of these there are only about four flies you need to be a successful tarpon fisherman you need a like a black and purple fly yep for early morning light or late evening light in the dark muddy water you know daytime really dirty water i like a uh, a white grizzly and a yellow fly uh steve huff his kind of a fly they, they called it the white lightning okay i tie a shrimp fly that's really good it's a uh, just one strand of a of a ginger marabou tail. Yep. And then I take another strand of marabou, and I tie the tip in on the shank, and I palmer, I twist it, and palmer towards the eye of the hook. Okay. Then I have two strands of wire to secure that marabou, makes it a little bit more durable. And they have two little a set of eyes on the back of the hook, right in front of the marabou tail. What's that fly called? I, I, I don't have a name. I, 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 <laughs> it's, I can just call it my shrimp bug. Yeah, my shrimp bug, okay. Shrimp bug. Andy's shrimp bug. It, you know, originally when I wrote my book, Tom Perrow, the publisher, he wanted me to name all these flies. I said, I don't name flies, damn it. <laughs> so it was the dinner shrimp, the breakfast shrimp, the lunch shrimp. I like that. <laughs> that, was that was fucking nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, but... And that was three. And, and what then was the you fourth need one? the need a worm fly. The worm fly. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing those four. You don't need a whole. Look, it's not the arrow; it's the Indian. If you know, I can catch a tarpon with a lot of very, very uh, different kinds of flies. Yeah. Because I know how to feed them. I know how to allow that fish to close the gap with my fly, without stripping the fly away from the fish too soon. Do you teach any of this? I know you're teaching some here at the fly fishing show. What are some of the classes or some of the presentations you're giving at the show? I'm going to do a uh, casting in the wind presentation, you know. But the, look, there are so many great casting instructors at this show. You can yeah. be mesmerized. They're going to spin your eyes in your head, yeah. you know, because they're so technical. I teach how to catch fish. I teach how to cast the fly in the wind. Yep. I teach fishing. Yeah. I don't know all the angles of my wrist. I'm not a master caster right. instructor. I know how to backhand cast 80 feet. I know how to forehand cast. I know how to cast between the boat. I got a great double haul. I can do it all. Yeah. You have to have great dexterity to be a great saltwater fly fisherman. Because the wind's coming one way, the boat's facing another. It's over your right shoulder. You know, you got to figure out how to get the fly to the fish. Yeah. It's not like river fishing, not like lake fishing. It's a new ball game. You have to be an unbelievably quick with dexterity as a saltwater fly catcher. And that's... For tarpon specifically. Any fish. Okay. Permit, tarpon, bonefish. Yep. Yeah, you're, yeah, obviously, right. That's the, the biggest problem I would say most people have in, in fishing in saltwater uh, in general. You can't make a they quick... Can't get, they can't get the fly to the fish. Well, I, I did hear this, that you have a challenge taking people out fishing for tarpon. I don't do it. <laughs> That's the challenge. I, it's I, not your challenge. It's my challenge. I, no, I don't you do st- it. You stopped doing it. You used to do it. Oh, well, I, I take VIPs, and I take some friends, and, you know, they'd always want to catch one on a fly. And yeah. I would say, look, do you want to catch a fish, or you want to fuck around? Because <laughs> you, you're not capable. Yeah. President Bush came to me when he was 80, and he wanted me to help him catch a big tarpon on fly. But I knew he didn't have good eyes. I knew he couldn't cast well enough. He's 80. So I got George Woods, a friend of mine, and I said, let's just go chum up a channel. Yeah. Get these tarpon all chummed up. We'll have him throw in the fly, and we'll drift a crab back there with, with a cork on it. <laughs> I said, if he catches a fish, he'll be in heaven. Yeah. We caught him a big 140-pound fish. He was ecstatic. Yeah. Here's a president of the United States that got a tear in his eye. Like, he was yeah. so excited. It was his bucket list fish he'd never caught. And one of the reasons you had mentioned is that sometimes you, people that you take out couldn't make the, the proper cast. You know what? It's my time fishing with my son is invaluable. I wait the entire year to be on the water with my son. I'm 70. How many more years do I have available to be out there and be active and be really aggressive yeah. in fishing? Well, tell us about your son, because we haven't talked about Nikki yet. He's your right hand on your podcast. He's your buddy elk hunting, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So tell us a little bit about Nikki. Well, he's a kid that always wanted to be on my shoulders. Yep. Even when he was really little. I always had him by the ankles, and he was sitting on my shoulders. I'd go into the tournaments with the registration, he'd be on my shoulders. 
He'd always lo- love to ride on my motorcycles. He'd sit right on the gas tank between my legs. When I took him skiing, you know, when he was really little, two years old, I'd put these little goggles on him and I'd hold him, hold him by his buttocks right in front of me. Most people that take kids skiing, they have them in a backpack behind them so the kids can't see they can't see what we see as skiers. They don't see the slope and the wind and the air and the flying part. So I'd always hold them by their, by their butt like this, and I'd go rip down the hill 50 miles an hour. Wow. <laughs> wow. Big turns. They'd put their arms out. Put your arms out like a bird. So they'd have their arms out to their sides like this, and I'm, I'm going big open turns and, and going fast. Chrissy hated it. I, oh, I was going to say the moms, the moms. Oh, I said, don't look. Yeah. <laughs> and so he became my buddy, and then when I was starting to, you know, tarpon fish, I net mullet. He'd always play with the mullet. We'd go barracuda fishing with mullet. He loved it. He was always in the game. Yeah. Snowboarding. He was racing motorcycles when he was six years old, like his other brothers. Yeah. But his other brothers didn't catch on to the fishing. They were into, you know, the skateboarding. Yeah. The snowboarding. Race. We all had, had a 20-foot motorcycle race a trailer that held seven race bikes. And we were at races every weekend staying staying at Holiday Inns. Awesome. What a great oh, childhood. And so eventually he, at uh, like 12, he had an unbelievable backhand cast. So every time we would take him tarpon fishing, he'd say, Dad, set me up with a backhand. But he became really good. And when he'd hook a big fish, I'd say, look, if you don't catch this fish in 15 minutes, I get the rod. And that's how I taught him how to, how to catch big fish fast. I taught him the techniques of doing it, but then I put the pressure, I put the clock on him. That's awesome. And he, he, this guy, he caught a 180-pound tarpon two summers ago in May in 36 minutes on 16-pound test. We're going to take a short commercial break to hear from Tim O'Neill of Norvice. What makes the Norvice different than another system? There are a lot of rotary fly tying vices out there. The Norvice is the only vice that will truly spin when you tie flies, and there's a big difference between rotating a vice slowly and spinning it at a bit of a faster RPM. And being able to spin the hook on a zero-axis rotations opens up a lot of doors for us in the world of fly tying. Tell me about the introduction of colors to the Norvice system. When we obtained the company from Norm, he said to me just a very, very short statement. He said, you know, I always thought a colored Norvice would be a cool item. We brought out five colors, Radical Red, Sunset Orange, Shamrock Green, Liberty Blue, and Royal Purple. We have five colors along with the black that you're accustomed to seeing with Norvice, and we've been doing very well with those. To find more information in their online store, visit nor-vice.com. So we've talked a bit about feeding the fish and, and the, some of the flies. Well, I don't want to get into leaders and all because that's super technical. Your guide can help you with that. But I do want to talk about equipment. Is there a certain equipment or style of equipment that could prepare me best to catch a tarpon? Yeah. Look, most people, you know, they think tarpon, they think 12 weights. You know, fish with a 10 or an 11. I catch a lot of fish with a 10 weight. In a 20-mile-an-hour wind, what line do you think is going to cast better into the wind? A 9, 10, 11, or a 12? So, well, I'll probably be able to manage a 10-weight better than a 12-weight line. Well, here's the deal. The width of the fly line is terribly aerodynamically poor. Yep. So a 12-weight is the worst. It's too fast, like throwing, trying to throw a rope like a kite in, or something into a like fan. That. But your 10-weight and 11, the diameter of the fly line is much thinner. So I would say, you know, depending on where you're going to go, you know, I've caught big fish on nine weight rods, ten yeah. weights. The last tournament fish I caught was like 130 pounds on a ten weight. So, don't think you need really big guns. Yep. Because on the ocean, it's kind of hard. I would say gravitate to a ten or an eleven. Yeah. I would say pick a fly line that you like to cast with those rods. Tarpon and taper then, or and something. Then, yeah, and then like it's really the reels are are more important than people think. The hardy reels that we have. You want a, a drag that goes from zero to 100% in one revolution. You know, turn it and turn it and turn it. That way you know where you're at. Yeah. So I can pull drag off my reel, increasing my drag until I get to five pounds. I can put a mark on the drag regulator, the drag knob, yeah. and put a mark on the back of your reel wall. Okay. That's, I know when I put those two lines together, that's five pounds. Well, that was, yeah. And then okay, I can go to incredible. eight. Then when you go to eight pounds, you can put another mark on the back of the reel, and you go to 10 pounds, there's another mark. So it's not and just click, click, click. You are actually marking. You know where you're at. You're actually marking uh, strength, breaking strength. Right, because if you're out there fishing and you don't know what you're doing, you hook this really big fish and you get aggravated, you keep increasing the drag. You keep increasing the drag. Pretty soon the fish jumps out of the water and he breaks off. 
So there's an understanding that's got to be, and a lot of guides don't even know this stuff. Yeah. A lot of guides don't even know how to tie a bimini twist. Yep. But I don't want to shun guides because there's, you know, there's a lot of great ones too. Yeah. But you need a, a really good saltwater reel. The reason I say there's only two reels that have a drag like that. It's the Mako. It's a very expensive reel. It's $2,500 or the Hardy. Those are the only two reels that make a drag that go from zero to 100%. So in one revolution. One revolution so you can mark it and you know exactly where you are. If you're, catching, if you're chasing world record light tippet stuff, you can mark it at one pound, two pounds, three pounds, four pounds. Well, so, you're super technical because I know you even have this device. And can you explain this device in your basement or wherever it is that actually, you know, you have your braking strength. You test your braking strength of your tippets. Can you explain that process? Well, what I do is, is like, I've really tried to study knots. What are really knots that break as close to 100% as you can? And I've got a digital scale. So I'll tie a knot. Let's just say loop knots. What I'll do is I'll tie a loop knot, and then I've got a bar above uh, my tackle room, and I can wrap my monofilament around that and the other end to the scale. And then I just pull it until it breaks, and, and the, it breaks, and I can see the, on the scale what it broke at. So you physically pull it? I physically pull it until it breaks, but there's an electronic readout under my scale. So I what can stops find at the at the maximum? At the breaking point. And so it'll, even after it breaks, you'll still see that number on the it's scale? Fro- it's frozen. That's amazing. You know, so I try to test loop knots, like a clinch knot, your classic clinch knot is a fucking great knot. It's way up there. But there's only a couple loop knots that are close to 100%. Okay. And I didn't know how to describe them. I've always used like, like an improved Homer Road. Okay. That's not that great. Right. It's really not. And, and it's just things that I don't even know the names of certain knots that my friends like Dustin Huff would say, hey, try this knot. And it's, yep. it's awesome. And he doesn't even know the name of it. But it's a good knot. It's, it's like almost 100%. You're in your basement testing knots and testing, making leaders. Yeah. And uh, you're doing all the preparation that leads up to the day. It's not always just, you know, go out and win the tournament. No, You're doing no. all that back-end work. Yeah. So, like, when, you know, when I was getting into it, I wanted to learn how to catch a 100-pound fish in 15 minutes. Because if you're on that fish for an hour, hour and a half, the fish is going to die. Yeah. And or you're losing a lot of fishing time. So I figured I used to always have, like, a a boga grip and having Chris or, you know, whomever hang onto the boga grip and I'd stand back and pull to see how much weight I'm pulling. Because when somebody says pull harder, what does that mean? Yeah. They usually just lift the rod higher. But when you put numbers together, when I was fishing 16-pound test tippet in the tournaments, I wanted to be able to pull 12 pounds consistently. And not 12 pounds on the drag where I measure the drag 12 pounds because a 100-pound fish in the water without swimming or kicking is less than 10% of its body weight. So he, that fish might only weigh 8 pounds. But when he jumps out of the water, that's a 100-pound fish. And if you have a tight drag, he's going to break you off. And if you see a lot of the old, iconic, world record chasers, Tom Evans, Stu Apt, they all held onto their fly line with a golf club to increase their drag. Not from the reel, but from their hands hanging onto the fly line. So my drag over all these years has only been set at five pounds. Maybe not even that. And so I can hang onto that fish and when he jumps out of the water, I just let go go over the fly line and now it's back to three pounds. So he's not going to land on my tip and break me off. So let's just go back. I mean, that's kind of an advanced level of fighting big fish. Yeah. But, but what I did is I put a pulley under my table because I wanted to figure out 12 pounds. What does 12 pounds feels like? So I got a definitive number, a barbell. I took my butt section of my fly line, the leader, threw that pulley and tied it to the 12-pound barbell. Now when I stand back and I hang on to that fly line and I pull, if I pull the correct way, that weight's going to come up off the floor. If I pull with too much bend in the rod tip, I can't even budge that 12-pound barbell. So now it's trying to figure out how to match my body to the rod. And the way you do that is you... You can lock your drag all the way up and hang onto your fly lines. Just step all the way back with a straight rod until the, that barbell comes up off the ground. When it's up off the ground, now take a step forward and keep it off the ground. When you take that step forward, you've got to raise the rod tip. So you're feeling it. that. So now, all that strength from your big muscles when you're standing back with straight arms, and now you've got the, the big muscles of the fly rod, the butt section, now, when you move it to the tip, the weakest part of the rod, now you're at the weakest part of your body, your bicep. You do not fight fish with a big, high-bend 
bent in your rod. There's no resistance. Yeah. So when you go to set a hook, if you strip strike, you get all the slack out. And then when you go to set the hook, you, you have your rod up against your belly and you hang on there and you set it with the butt of the rod. But if you ever try to set a, a hook with a rod tip, trout set, all you're going to do is poke the fish. Yeah. The tip of the hook goes in, he jumps out of the water and then he falls off. And that's why most people struggle with catching tarpon. They, they don't set properly. They don't set properly. You got to get really tight with that left hand, that stripping hand. Aggressive, or, like aggressive. You got to get tight with a fairly straight rod and just bend it really hard and hold that fish. And when he shakes his head, he's going to set the hook. That's the real nuts and bolts of how to. I love that. Thanks for that pro tip, Andy. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, before we close, I want to talk about one of your other great passions, and that's elk hunting. Oh, my God. There's nothing like it. How did you get involved in elk hunting? And tell me, tell me about what you're doing today. You're bow hunting. You and Nikki go out bow hunting for elk. Yeah. I got into bow hunting with Greg Norman. Okay. <laughs> Back on Greg. Back yeah. to Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Greg. Yeah. Well, no, he deserved it. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> well, I heard Tiger wants to kick him uh, out of the whole situation. I heard, uh, I heard him and Tiger are best friends. Either. Tour, everybody. He's watered down golf. Yeah. Who wants to watch golf now when the best players are all dispersed around the world? Well, I heard Tiger say, you know, there's an opportunity to blend these things and make us work together, but you got to get rid of Norman first. For sure. Uh, anyway, so he invited, we had a family vacation. You know, Chrissy and I went with he and Laura to his yeah. ranch in, in uh, Seven Lakes Lodge out in Colorado, and I killed my first elk with Greg with my bow. And to see that dynamic played out of actually learning how to bugle and cow call and convince that animal to come to you, and then you kill it at five or ten yards. Yeah. And it's like turkey hunting, but with a 750-pound mammal. I love that more than anything. That's your truest it's, passion Oh, right my now. God. Let me tell you something. It's inc- I've killed, I think, eight or nine now. I've killed some big ones. And Nikki, Only eight or nine? Yeah. You guys are very uh, I mean, selective. I mean, I mean, but Nikki's killed about eight or nine, too. So in total, yeah, about like, 16, 17 elk. But it's hard. I went for two years without a shot. So Remember, you, yeah. with, with a bow and arrow, it's not like you see him and you got him. Right. You got to get the shot. And last year, Nikki killed one on the second morning. And so we didn't need the meat. Like, I, I could have killed, like, four others, but I was waiting to get a really a, a monster. You want, yeah, you're selective and, and, and you're the close yeah, range. I called two really big ones in. I just couldn't get a shot. And they were at 15 yards, but they were behind brush or something. I couldn't get a shot. But it's all good because, again, it's the journey. It's the journey that yeah that we're all into you know fly fishing journey <laughs> you see how i said jeff for that it is the journey and that's why we named it fly fishing journeys yeah. because fly fishing is a journey life is a journey for sure and it's all a journey we're in together my tv show is called sportsman's journal okay they're the same kind of a scenario well you know what the funny part about that andy is i started fly fishing journals that was the original name oh is that right yeah and then i showed up at a show one time and it was like early on and this a few years back and then there was the magazine the fly fish journal oh i see and i'm like well i don't want to do that to those Dude. guys that's like people are going to think i'm kind of stealing their concept there mm-hmm. so i had to pay quite a bit of money to change all the marketing change everything i already printed but I only changed two letters. It went from A-L-S to E-Y-S. Oh, perfect. And I, I did an interview with, uh, with Gary Borger and right about that time. And I told him that story. He says, you know, I think I like fly fishing journeys better than, you know, fly fishing journals. So right. it actually worked out in the end. Yeah, no, it's, it, it all does, you know. But I don't know. It's great to be here yeah, at the show. I've been here for 14 years. You know what I really miss most about these shows is, is the passing of, of our legends. You know, there's going to be a fundraiser tonight for Lefty. They're going to, you know, try to create a, a statue for him. But, you know, Ed Jarowski's still here. Yeah. But Popovich, Jarowski, all these guys that have been here for decades and decades. That's important. We're losing their stories. We're losing their persons, you know. Well, yeah. It's, it's sad. That's kind of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm here. I often like to hear about, like, the stew apps. You know, I'm, I may not interview, like, a lefty cray. He passed before I started my podcast. But, you know, I may not to get to interview them. But I do get to interview folks like you who knew them and fished with them and, you know, like the stew apps. And we can carry on those legacies For sure. by talking about them and bringing those to the next mm-hmm. generation of people through podcasts. Because as we all know, they're, they're exploding right now. Why don't we close with this, this, Andy? Tell our listeners a little bit about the Millhouse podcast. How did you come up with that name? And like, who are some of your guests? And tell us about the podcast. Well, I'll make this brief, the introduction to it. My, my son couldn't get a job. 
very qualified, graduated with honors, one of the greatest outdoorsmen as a young man. He's 28. He knew about podcasts. He convinced me to do it. And I said, what's a podcast? (laughs) You know? And I had no idea what a podcast was, but I wanted to help him. He said, we just sit around and talk fishing. And the more I thought about it, you know, and I'd been in broadcasting, I said, no, we're not going to do it like that. Because I was told a long time ago, who cares if Aunt Mary's farm burns down if you don't know who Aunt Mary is? Right. So I told Nikki, we're going to dive in and get to know these people as to not only why they're an icon, but who they are. Sure. And so what we've done, we focused on the icons of our sport, the guys who innovated it, Steve Huff, his story with Dale Brown. They were the first ones to figure out that you need weight on a fly to help you catch permit. And then that transcended uh, bonefish and, and, and a lot of other fish. Yeah. But that evolution... Figuring out how to catch tarpon on fly with Steve Huff, Stu Apt, Gordy Hill, 93 years old, what he's done. The list goes on and on. And you're, you're doing yours in person, which is awesome because yeah. you're doing it right from your house, right, Pete? You're, all these guys and all these different personalities, yeah. they all come over to your house or sometimes you go to theirs. I go to theirs or they come to mine, uh, sometimes in a hotel room. But we also videotape it. And uh, we were talking, you know, asked about a name. I thought, well... Millhouse has got a great little catch. Yeah, I like it. And I wasn't thinking about branding my name or anything right. like that. It just sound, it was a great ringtone. Okay. Because the whole branding thing, I don't care. I don't have a Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I don't care. Yeah. I just want the success of the things that I've done speak for me. And I will never post stuff. I don't want people to say, oh, look at me. Yeah. I, that's not me. Right. We do on the Millhouse Instagram site, which... We'll have sound bites from all of our guests. But yeah. what we're really trying to do in a nutshell is save and preserve the history of our sport and, this, and the great storytelling of these guys that are going to be passed, that are passing, and we're going to lose their stories unless we get them. I'm not sure if it is now, but I think originally it was a lot of the guides in Florida and you kind of work in the salt water and getting those stories about these guides, right? A lot. Of, it, initially it was guides, but I think it's expanded. It's expanding because we did Tom McGuane in Montana, the mm. great author. We're going to do Carl Hyacin next week, another author. Yep. Huey Lewis. Yeah. Huey Lewis in the news. He lost his hearing in 2018, and, and fishing has saved his life. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, and the thing that we like about it, too, is that we videotape the whole thing, so... On YouTube, you can just type in Millhouse Podcast, and you get to see we have done 80 interviews over the last three years. People are watching it in over 110 countries. That's amazing. People want to hear great storytelling. And one of our best stories was with Neil Beidelman, a guide on Everest in 96, where those eight people got caught in that storm. Mm. And he spoke about that storm on Everest. Books were written. Movies were made from that storm. All those people died. So that's a testament that people not only want to hear great fishing stories, they want to hear great stories. So anyway. That's amazing. Well, the Millhouse Podcast, check it out. Andy, it's been an absolute blast to have you on the podcast. Good fun. I think we've got to know you. I think that was one of the things. <laughs> we, you asked, said, hey, a good podcast. You get to know somebody. That's all. You got all my layers, bro. I, 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 <laughs> I got skinny there for a second. The good, bad, and the awesome. How about that? The good, bad, and the awesome. Thank Andy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. My pleasure, Bob. You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. 